Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. 
Today, we investigate the wild world of food fraud with food detective Chris Elliott. In 2013, Elliott became well-known for investigating the horse meat scandal in the United Kingdom. Elliott says that fake and adulterated foods are an international business involving hundreds of foods. One of the surprising statistics is that there is more money made out of fraud and food in the world than there is in narcotics. What? Really? That's the scale. Because if you think about the amount of money that we spend on food every year, it's trillions of dollars. Also coming up, I share a few unexpected ways to use yogurt. We visit Milan for speedy and creamy risotto. But first, food writer Laura Russell is going to explain a Taiwanese culinary concept called Q. Laura, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. We're going to talk about Q. So let's start with a definition of Q. So uh, Q is all about texture. And it's something that's kind of springy and bouncy and, and chewy. You'd almost call it a toothsome texture. Or, or gummy worm texture. Well, it's funny you would say gummy worm. I like to, to say that gummy worms are the lowest common denominator of Q, and that's really the closest thing in Western, or at least in American cuisine, that I can use as an example so people understand what I'm talking about when I say Q. So in Taipei, at the one of the mm-hmm. night markets, Rauhei Night Market, they do sell, as you know, the shaved ice with the blossom water, and then mochi balls on top. So that mochi ball, which is what, rice flour, starch, that's sort of the essence of Q, that that chewy, springy texture? Yes. It's actually made from glutinous rice flour, so from sweet rice or sticky rice. And it's often, well, it's always a starch, either sweet potato flour, tapioca, or glutinous rice flour that's giving Q its chewiness. So we should describe, you get this big bowl with just a huge mound of sweetened shaved ice, and then on top you have four or five of these white, hot, doughy balls, and and you get a long spoon. And it it looked to me, it was a a good date night dish. Yes, Yes. it's definitely, uh, I've had that dish multiple times. Well, first of all, let me say, Taipei is just a wonderland for shaved ice. But this particular one called Fire and Ice, you know, you have the sort of chunky, crunchy ice, and and it's just in a, a giant mound. And then on top of it, they have freshly poached these uh, tongyuan, which are the uh, glutinous rice balls, and they, they're stuffed with either a hot black sesame filling or a peanut filling. So you do have some flavor from that, but you also have this contrast of hot and cold, and you also have the contrast from the chewiness or the queuiness, I guess, of the mochi ball (laughs) and the crunchiness of the ice. So it seems like this super, super simple dessert, but there's really quite quite a bit going on. So what are some other dishes where queue comes into play? Uh, meatballs. They sometimes call them bouncy meatballs. <laughs> well, I think they could bounce. Um, the goal in in these meatballs, you're not looking for tenderness like you would in an Italian meatball. They're really more rubbery, 
And they attain that texture by pounding ground pork together with the starch. And they roll it into little balls that look like silly putty. I'm mm. convinced they may have just as much bounce as if you if you threw a ball of uh, silly putty. Mm. But when I when I call them rubbery or bouncy, it's this it's this same Q texture, and they're really quite uh, quite delicious. So there are other natural ingredients like parts of animals, like tendon, right? So beef noodle soup, which is one of the great dishes in in Taiwan. You can get a what a beef tendon version of it. I mean, in other words, tendon is is got Q, right? Exactly. Uh, most things that you describe as Q are man-made. They're you know they include one of those starches I mentioned, but beef tendon is an ingredient that's uniquely naturally Q. It, it's such an experience eating beef tendon. You know, it, it's it's sort of ropey and chewy and bouncy, but then interspersed, you find these little gelatinous pockets of collagen. So you have that kind of melting on your tongue at the same time, and it, it's really an adventure eating the the beef tendon in a, in a bowl of beef noodle soup. It makes me wonder. You know, here in America, we don't really like texture. We like soft steaks. We don't even like chewy meat. Uh, but in Asia, in, in most places, the texture of food is as important as the flavor of food. Is, is that right? Well, I, I think you you hit the nail on the head. And this was sort of the adventure in my discovery. You know, I went from not liking Q to absolutely loving it and seeking out. But I think in America, we have a very, very limited repertoire of textures that people appreciate here. I mean, we basically have, you know, soft and creamy or crunchy and crisp. And anything outside of that realm is, I don't think, tremendously popular. But in many Asian cuisines, you know, the texture gets equal, if not more importance, you know, in the success of a dish. And you're right. So chewy, gristly, rubbery, spongy. These are all Mm. qualities that are really, really prized. So now you're back stateside. Uh, How do you get enough Q? (laughs) Uh, I don't get enough Q. You know, the only thing I can get easily here is is bubble tea. And and that's not really my Q of choice. I kind of prefer the warm, savory dishes. My daughter is a giant fan of the shaved ice you were mentioning. So she actually makes homemade tang yuan. Really? She, uh, yeah, she makes the dough huh. out of the glutinous rice flour, and then she poaches it and makes uh, osmanthus syrup out of honey and osmanthus blossom. So my daughter gives me, I think, the biggest huh. fix I get. She, she makes at home. Uh, Laura, thank you. Now I know what Q is, and if I want some, I'll just come to your house and your daughter can make it for me. She certainly would be happy to do that. (laughs) Thank you, Laura. Thank you. That was food writer Laura Russell. Her article for Roads and Kingdoms is called The Curious Case of Q. It's time to take your calls with my co-host Sarah Bolton. She's the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also the author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah Moulton, how are you? I'm good, and I'm ready to hear what people want to know. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Jane from Louisville, Kentucky. How are you? I'm very well. How are you today? I'm good, and I'm hoping we can answer your question. 
Well, I hope so. I'm a big fan of the podcast, the magazine, the website, love it all. Um, And I've been trying something new. I've seen several articles lately about salt roasting vegetables in the oven using kosher salt, a good amount of it. And I want to experiment around a little more with this, but I feel really guilty throwing away huge amounts of kosher salt after each batch of vegetables. So I guess the question is, is there some way to reuse the salt? Has it lost its saltiness in the roasting process? Could I save it for a brine or something later in the week? Do you have any suggestions? I think later in, in the week is not a bad idea at all. The trouble is that when you roast with vegetables, my guess is that some of the liquid from the vegetable goes into the salt. Depending on the vegetable, yeah. Are salt roasted vegetables better than just roasted vegetables. Oh, you're asking the bleeding obvious. Good for you. Well, is it? Or, I mean, or is this one of these fancy food magazine good, ideas that good, we good should just question, like, throw in the trash? It is an excellent question, and I've gotten mixed results from the family. Some say they like them, some say they can't tell a difference. Yeah. That's why I kind of wanted to play around with them a little more, but I hesitated to do so because I just I hate to be so wasteful. Yeah, I mean, you know, salt-roasted potatoes, or you cook potatoes in a very heavily salted water, for example. Yes. That's great. That is great, because uh, then, then they sort of get a salt, little bit of a salt crust. But if I'm going to roast carrots or something in a roasting pan in the oven, I don't think a bed of salt's going to really help very much. Sometimes a bed of salt or breadcrumbs is good if you're roasting a chicken, so the, the drippings get absorbed, they don't flare up and smoke. I'm just saying I don't think this doesn't sound like a great idea. You could use it for cleaning your pans, certainly. You could mm-hmm. use it for brine, certainly. Uh, and here's a really good but one. But I, I wouldn't use it as salt. No. Do you have copper pots? Probably not. But one of the no, best one no. of the best ways to clean copper is to mix kosher salt, flour, and white distilled vinegar and make a sort of a paste. Mm-hmm. And that will clean your copper pots. You don't have to use anything toxic. And they'll just shine. Okay. But you don't have any, so it's a moot No, point. no, I haven't. Look, I bought in New York back in the 70s, Charles Lamal. Remember that yes, store? They my sold, mother used to buy stuff there. It was a, up on the 10th floor in some building, and you bought the French cookware. I bought a whole... Bazaar Francaise. Yeah, battery yes. de cuisine. I had yeah. like 10 pots, and I, I still have them, and I never clean them. But that's what you can And do. I never use them <laughs> except a couple. But they look great old. Yeah. I would say, go back to the recipe, I don't think you're adding a lot of value by taking five cups of salt and putting it on the bottom of the pan. Yeah, I do feel like that's wasteful. I mean, I feel differently, say, another place you use a ton of salt is salt-baked fish, yeah. where you make a paste with... But that's so 60s. It's so yummy. That's where I would waste the salt, but here, not so much. No. Great. You've saved me a lot of time and trouble then. <laughs> okay. Hey, well, just tell them you baked it on salt, if they can't tell the difference. Yeah. <laughs> You get the best of both worlds. Yeah, it's all in positioning, you know? It's all, it's all in the story. Right. So, anyway. Thanks for your help. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi there. My name's Lynn, and I'm calling from the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, hello. How can we help you today? I have two questions, both around substitutions and recipes, which probably makes you crazy, but I hope you'll stick with me. First, I always have... Greek yogurt in my fridge, and I read that I can substitute it for sour cream if I add baking soda. Must I add the baking soda, or can both non-fat and full-fat Greek yogurt be substituted for sour cream? And if I did substitute with yogurt, how would this affect the soup or a cake, for example? Oh, so that's what you want to use it in, either a soup or a cake? Yes. So in a soup, let's say a soup has no starch in it. 
You didn't thicken it with flour. You didn't thicken it with potatoes. You didn't thicken it with anything. It's just a soup, and you're going to stir in the sour cream at the end, and maybe it's going to come to a boil. The sour cream will curdle, so will the yogurt. You could certainly do that. Absolutely not a problem. Just don't boil it. And if you do want to boil it, make sure that there's starch in the soup. Do I need to add the baking soda or not? No, I don't know what that's all about. Well, in baking, sour cream has acid in it. And so does yogurt. Yeah, but I think sour cream probably is more. Really? It might affect the chemistry of a little bit. But I, I think you could substitute Greek yogurt for sour cream. It's not going to make a difference. Although the nonfat will not have the same butterfat content, so it won't be quite as rich. I would take all the nonfat Greek yogurt and put it on a large boat and sink it somewhere <laughs> in the middle of the Atlantic. If you're Chris Kimmel no. and you're a trim no, man, no, listen, he can eat anything listen he to wants me. to. Listen to me. Not my like wife, us mere my, females My wife here. eats 2%. Greek yogurt three times a day. And I always say, you know, get the whole fat yogurt and just eat a little bit less of it because when they process that stuff, sometimes it, by the way, it doesn't have fewer calories. Do you know that? I did not no, know they, that. No, it turns out sometimes actually the calories are you the same. You made that up. I did not make that up. In any case, whole fat is better for you. You just don't eat as much of it. It's much more satisfying. Non-fat yogurt is like spackle. It's like, come on. I mean, it's like, I mean, if you put, then you got to put a lot of maple syrup on it or something so it tastes good. Anyway, the answer is yes, you can substitute in baking. Okay. I understand not to boil it unless there's starch. I don't need to add baking soda. And that works just as well if I'm making a cake or cupcakes or something. Yeah, but I would use whole fat. You need the butterfat content because the dairy is important. If it's just a quarter cup okay. in the recipe, it doesn't matter. But if it's a lot, okay. then I would use whole fat. That's very helpful. Similarly, along with the substitution path, I, and this will really make you crazy, I, when making a quiche sometimes, or another recipe that calls for either regular or heavy whipping cream, uh-huh. can I randomly substitute half and half? And this is usually when I want to lighten it up a little bit. I think it can still be delicious and not be like a dessert. You would prefer to eat a quiche that doesn't have as much fat in it. Yeah, because I'd like to also be able to have my desserts. Okay, well, yeah, you can substitute half and half. You could even use milk, whole milk. Okay, so I thought that I heard that you can't substitute half and half for whipping cream. Is that not true? You That's can't okay if you you can't in recipes where you need whip to it. whip it because half and half right. does not have a high enough butterfat content to be whipped. Okay, That's that that awesome. wasn't silly. That that was fine. That was legitimate. I get that. Just stop eating nonfat yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> enjoy yourself. Okay. Yeah, enjoy life. Yeah. All right. Okay, thanks for calling. Thanks so much. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Sarah and I are ready to tackle your culinary challenges, so please call us at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Nancy Gold from Cambridge. Hi, Nancy. How can we help you? So, I have a recipe for coconut macaroons. Uh That's a great recipe, but it has egg whites in it. And suddenly in the last couple of years, some of the people in my family have become vegans, and I have been making this recipe for Passover dessert for the last number of years. And now the vegans are telling me that they can't eat it because there's egg whites in it. So I'm wondering if there's anything that works as a substitute for egg whites in a recipe like that. You know, it used to be when all of us were younger, this was much simpler, wasn't it? You just cook something and people came <laughs> over and ate it. Well, there is that stuff in the 
you know, the can of beans, right, Sarah? Yes. This is the craziest thing, and I'd love to know who discovered this, but the liquid left over in a can of chickpeas apparently very much mimics eggs, and you can use it in place of eggs. You can beat it up. It whips up. It's called aquafaba, (laughs) and it's crazy, right, Chris? We've done it, actually, at Milk Street a couple times. I don't remember, was it two or three tablespoons per egg or something? Yeah. Three tablespoons, maybe. Three tablespoons per egg. For egg whites, it's two Two tablespoons. Yeah, two tablespoons. You could try that as a substitute, yeah. And interestingly enough, also, it benefits from a pinch of cream of tartar, much like egg whites, when you're beating it. Okay. It takes longer to beat. There's actually no beating involved. It's just you mix the egg whites in with the coconut and other ingredients. I'm pretty sure I haven't made it. Um, in a while. No, so just try that. So two tablespoons of the thick liquid. Per egg white. Yeah. Okay. I mean, give it a shot. Let us know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. No, it's one of those weird things, but... Yeah. Most recipes, you know, for hummus, if you used... I mean, Chris is now gasping because he makes designer hummus with dried beans. But in the old days, you know, they'd say, take the can and drain it and then rinse off all that nasty liquid. And now that nasty liquid has turned out to be liquid gold. Okay, I'll give it a shot. Maybe I'll try it with half the recipe um, and see how it works. Very good Um, idea. (laughs) Give it a shot and uh, let us know. I will. Thanks a lot. Yeah, we're rooting for you. Thanks for calling. Yes. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we investigate the wide world of food fraud with food detective Chris Elliott. That's right after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. 
feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Jay Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. These days, when you visit the grocery store, you've come to expect the food you're buying hasn't been adulterated with, say, cardboard or wax. But food detective Chris Elliott says food fraud is pervasive and it's become a major industry for criminal networks around the world. Chris Elliott, welcome to Milk Street. Oh, it's fantastic to talk to you. You call yourself a food detective. Uh, what is a food detective and uh, where do you work and what do you do? Okay, so first of all, I work at a, a university. It's called Queen's University in Belfast. And, and what I do do here. I'm, I'm professor of food safety. And the reason I call myself a food detective is myself and my fantastic research team, we look for things that go wrong in the global food system. Often it's about looking at how people cheat and, and some of the criminal activities that go on. So one of the most uh, well-known examples in recent years was the horse meat scandal. Just tell us a little bit about that, how it was discovered, and what the results were. Yes, what became known as the European horse meat scandal broke in 2013, and, and some results started to be produced by testing laboratories to say that they were finding fairly large quantities of horse meat in different types of beef products. That could range from burgers to lasagnas, a whole, a whole myriad of different things. And what really unfolded was that somehow the European 
beef supply system had been penetrated by a number of different criminal networks. And what they were doing is putting massive amounts of very, very low quality horse meat and trading it as beef. So I spent the best part of 18 months looking at that uh, scandal that went on and, and I, I, I reported to the UK government. I produced an independent report which was called the Elliot Review in terms of how can we stop this happening in the future. Yeah, the thing that, that occurs to me is you guys figured out there was horse DNA, but somebody was buying up thousands of horse carcasses, butchering them, grinding them up, putting them in with beef, and selling them to places like Tesco, one of Britain's bigger supermarket chains. So to cover all that up would seem to me pretty difficult, right? Yes, and I mean, again, you're absolutely right. When I looked at what was the big driver for this fraud, we can link it to the, the World Economic Recession, actually, which dated back to 2008. It became more and more difficult for people to, to keep horses as pets because the economy oh. wouldn't, wouldn't stand it. And they were being taken and bought by unscrupulous people and mm. slaughtered and, and put into the, the, the meat supply system. It was extremely well organized. It was happening not at a national level, but a multinational level. Mm. In fact, in Europe, it was something like 20 different countries all became embroiled in the European horse meat scandal. So, so this has been going on for hundreds, if not thousands of years, right? Uh, it, bread in medieval London had all sorts of stuff in it, uh, brick dust, etc. So this is not, not something new. This has been going on in much worse cases for a long time, right? I mean, when, when I looked at the history of fraud, food fraud, I could get cases going back more than 2,000 years. I, I play with my students here at this university. I play what's called the food fraud game. And I get my students to name any type of food commodity or any type of food ingredient. And I have 30 seconds to come up with some sort of fraud that has been uncovered in that commodity or ingredient. And it's a fantastic game. I love to play it because I've never lost it. Well, uh, now it's time to play the food fraud game. So let me, uh, let's let's do that. Fantastic. Let's do it. Uh, I'm going to throw out some real easy ones. Olive oil, that's pretty easy, right? Okay. So th thank you for giving me such a gentle start because <laughs> there is a massive amount of cheating goes on in olive oil in terms of what is type of oil is it you're actually buying. So I came across a fraud in Europe going back to 2013 where there was a factory and what was going into the factory was sunflower oil and what was coming out the other end was olive oil. You know, <laughs> one of life's miracles. And what they were doing inside the factory was they were adding an extract of daffodils huh. to the sunflower oil to get the color right. Um, how about, okay, Parmesan. How do you fake Parmesan? So Parmesan, sorry, uh, you, you're going to lose again. You're, you're, you're on a, a bad run here. <laughs> Do you know there, there, were, there was a fraud in Parmesan cheese in the US just a couple of years ago. And believe it or not, the Parmesan was being adulterated with shredded cardboard. What? To bulk it out. Yes. So uh, coconut is, is becoming really popular. Coconut oil, it, it's just one of those ingredients that has now become popular. I assume people have figured out how to fake coconut or coconut oil. Coconuts is, a, is one of the great examples that I use because you're absolutely right. It, it's a booming product now and there's been a big surge in, in the amount of sales. And often I would ask people is, 
where do you think all the coconuts suddenly came from? <laughs> because if you plant a coconut palm, it's at least eight years before right. that coconut palm produces a coconut. So where did they all come from? And often the case was, well, the coconut water is water with sugar added to it. The coconut <laughs> oil is different types of, of, of plant-based oils. So it, it's, it's a prime example where there's a surge in popularity in something. Right. It's, a, it's a remarkable uh, trigger for fraud. Is this something that is more prevalent in any country like the United States, or is it just all across the world? I mean, it, it happens everywhere. It also depends on the level of the, the regulatory environment within your country. And, you know, we, we thought in the UK and we thought across Europe, we, we've got some of the strictest food safety regulations in the world and, and nobody would be able to cheat here. And my goodness, were we wrong? Because food safety and food fraud are two completely different things. Any other example uh, you talk about is oregano. So why would anyone bother with that? And, and, and I think you said, you wrote somewhere, 25% of oregano on sale in the United States has some form of fraud, which is huge. What's in the oregano other than oregano? Yeah. And it, it seems to be, what an unusual food ingredient to cheat on. And then I go back to economics. So often we will buy our oregano or other herbs and you buy them in little 30 gram jars and it costs $1 or $2 or so forth. When you actually think about the price of oregano per ton, it's probably about $100,000 for a ton of that. Huh. It's a very, very valuable commodity. So that really for the last few years, we've been trailing oregano fraud in different parts of the world. And what we find is, I mean, it, the, the fraud is an industry in itself that... Um, the, the oregano will be sold and it will be adulterated with lots of different types of green leafy materials. And then whenever we identify a particular green leafy material, for instance, olive leaves was very popular, mm. then the fraudsters stopped using olive leaves and started to use strawberry leaves. Now we did a, we're doing a global survey of oregano and on average in the world, we find about 25% of all oregano being sold has been adulterated. And, and there's in fact, you know, if you want to be top of, of a particular ranking table of fraud, Australia ranks number one because it wasn't 25% there. It was about 70%. Here's a question. Is this a series of individuals? You know, there's, there's people doing oregano. There's people doing horse meat. It's this ragtag, decentralized, entrepreneurial fraud. Or are there some multinational groups that sort of do this for a living on a large scale? It is all of those and everything in between. So fraud can happen in a single company and really perpetrated by one single individual in that company. And at the other end of the extreme is there is more and more evidence of organized crime getting involved in fraud. So we look at drug cartels from Central America. We look at the, the mafia in operation in, in, in Europe. And one of the surprising statistics is that there is more money made out of fraud and food in the world than there is in narcotics. What? Really? That's the scale. Because if you think huh. about the amount of money that right. we spend on food every year, right. it's trillions of dollars. Well, that's a good and point. what we believe is the fraud goes to 
billions of dollars. I'm in the wrong business. I should, I should, be, <laughs> I should be in food fraud and make more money. Well, <laughs> if you want any hints or tips yes. about how to cheat, you know, you know a professor in Belfast who will go into business with you. How'd you like to be a, a co-partner? We'll just have to not discuss that on radio. Let, let's just pick a commodity. <laughs> uh, you refer to your laboratory as Star Trek. Uh, so, so what kinds of tools and gadgets and measuring devices are used to search out food fraud? Yeah. So we affectionately call our lab Star Trek because it is absolutely packed with equipment and technology platforms. So our, our specialist science here is we produce what we call food fingerprints. So if it's oregano, we will look at the entire molecular structure of that and produce a fingerprint of it. And it doesn't matter how anybody tries to cheat, whether it's olive leaves, strawberry leaves or, or grass cuttings from their back garden we will know that the fingerprint isn't right and we can identify that really quickly. And some of the innovations that we're driving now is we're trying to get some of that detection actually on smartphones. Wait, 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 wait. wait. So how do you do a DNA analysis of oregano using a smartphone? Our trick is we don't use DNA analysis. What we do is we look at the entire molecular structure uh-huh. of what food is made from. And then we will take some form of fingerprint. That That's usually a fingerprint based on the characteristics of light. So we shine light at different wavelengths on the sample. And based on its molecular structure, that will give you a very different profile. Because whenever light hits a food stuff, it, the, the, the food absorbs some of the energy and some of it vibrates and some mm. of it wobbles. And we can pick up that, that fingerprint of wobbling and then we can translate that into a very, very good analytical test. So what does this say about the consumer? We haven't talked about coffee, but that's been adulterated since the beginning of time. And so if it's not being adulterated with something that can harm you, it's got chicory in it or something, and you can't tell the difference. Uh, <laughs> what does that mean about the consumer? Uh, if you're buying adulterated coffee, but it seems to taste good to you. Often people will, will say, it's nothing to worry about. As long as it tastes okay, I, I, I'm not worried. And I think that's a really big mistake. Because first of all, you're, you're being cheated by criminals. Right. But also... There is the (laughs) unintended consequences often of fraud where people think that they're putting something in which isn't harmful, but actually it is harmful and can have quite long-term consequences. And I'll go back as the example to oregano. Mm -hmm. And when when we uncovered that it was being adulterated with olive leaves, you know, people were going, well, olive leaves are okay. They're not going to poison you. And I went, absolutely not. But can you think about the amount of pesticides that are on olive leaves? Massive amounts. So that was the unintended consequence. People who were were consuming far more pesticides than they would ever want to. So are you still having uh, burgers? Well, I, I am blessed coming from the island of Ireland because we produce the best meat in the world and I only buy local meat and I only buy it from my local butcher shop and uh, every time I walk in he always looks nervous because he knows it's me. (laughs) You have that little smartphone with that special light thing. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, nice to see you. Chris Elliott, what a pleasure. This is fascinating and uh, I wish you all the best uh, with your future investigations. Thank you. Thank you so much for the conversation.
That was Chris Elliott, professor of food safety at Queen's University, Belfast. You know, Elliot reminded me that the food industry is ripe for fraud. We buy fake orange juice, high fructose honey, powdered milk that contains detergent, and vanilla extract that's not made from vanilla beans. And we should be especially wary of ground coffee and ground pepper. They're the perfect place to hide Erzatz ingredients. But the good old days of food fraud could actually kill you. Copper sulfate in green pickles and arsenic in peppermint sweets. I guess that's a lot worse than horse meat in your hamburger. It's time to chat with editorial director J.M. Hirsch about one of our favorite new recipes, risotto milanese. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. So you seem to travel more than I do. I'm not jealous. I'm (laughs) not. And you went to Milan not too long ago. And and when you were there, among other things, you found a technique, which I guess is old. I don't know. Maybe it's new. For cooking risotto in a whole new way. Uh, It really changed your mind and my mind. But so... uh, what did you find? Oh, you know, the, the chefs that I spoke to, you know, they were surprised when I said to them that risotto is hard and difficult to make. It takes a long time, lots of stirring, lots of simmering. And they were like, they looked at me like I was crazy because they do it in 25 minutes and with maybe 10 minutes of actual hands-on time. It kind of really blew me away. They brought me into the kitchen and, and I was just really surprised that some things that I expected to be mandatory, chicken broth, slow simmer, slowly ladling in the broth, right. constantly stirring, none of that happened. This is what I've been saying for 35 years. So be careful. <laughs> You're undermining. Yeah, I think you got it wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry. But yeah, so, you know, what they did was, first of all, they quickly saute an onion in a little bit of butter. And then you add your rice. You toast that in the butter with the onion. And then a lot of times then you deglaze with some wine. They blew that away. Don't even bother. They don't like the booziness of it. So instead... They add the broth. Now, we've been taught, you've taught me, to slowly stir and slowly ladle in all that broth over time. They just dump it right in. Hmm. All of it? All of it. All at once. And they don't use chicken broth, by the way. They use vegetable broth. Hmm. And they bring it right up to a strong simmer, and they just let it go. They give it a few aggressive stirs. After that, they've infused a little bit of broth with some saffron. They dump that in, and it's done in like 10 minutes after they add the broth. It was that fast and that simple. So this is, seems to be a theme from your trips to Italy is <laughs> don't add a lot of unnecessary stuff that mucks up the flavor. Polenta was the same, risotto. Exactly, yep. Keep it simple. And that's why they don't add, they, they don't add the wine because they feel it, it adds this booziness that even when you cook it, it doesn't totally cook off. Now, one trick I did learn from a different chef was that he finishes the dish with a splash of vinegar. And the vinegar brightens up this otherwise sometimes heavy dish and gives it that brightness that, a lot of people try to get with the wine, but they never quite succeed because, again, you get that booziness instead, which competes with all the other flavors. So I have one question. So for eight to ten minutes, it's medium-high heat. Yep. You're stirring frequently. Yeah. Yep. And then is it simmer for a while after no, that? No, it's done. So the actual cooking is about ten minutes. Actual cooking is about ten minutes. They finish it with that vinegar, maybe a little bit more butter, a little bit of Parmesan. Not a lot because they don't want to make it gluey, which I think here we tend to add too much cheese, glues mm-hmm. it up. And, and it's done. It's on the plate, and it's like a pool of sunshine on your plate. <laughs> How poetic, sir. Uh, one last thing. Was it toothsome and al dente, or did they cook it more? Oh, no, it was quite toothsome, quite al dente. And, but it was that, that kind of perfection that we strive for, and we often fail because we tend to overcook it because we're just stirring and stirring and ladling the broth and waiting for it to absorb. They just get in and get it done. 
So now I spend the rest of my career with you explaining to me why everything I said is wrong. Yeah, that's pretty much my goal. Thanks, Jam. <laughs> so risotto milanese, or you could just say saffron risotto, I guess, in mm -hmm. plain English. And you can make it in, you know, 15, 20 minutes yep. in a totally different method. Jam, thank you. Thank you. You can get this recipe for risotto milanese at 177milkstreet.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up, Dr. Aaron Carroll wonders if there's any real health benefit to drinking milk. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available, ready to eat, with cold-smoked, ultra-thin slices, as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Malt and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Ashley. Hi. Where are you calling from? From Los Angeles. Okay. I have a question about freezing yeast dough. I've been reading a lot of different conflicting things, and I'm wondering, do you just make a yeast recipe as is and then freeze it, or do you need to double the yeast, or do you need to not use warm water? What do you suggest? Well, the question is, do you freeze it before you proof it the first time or after, right? Right. That's the other thing. Generally, I've heard that you proof it once and then you shape it and then you freeze it. With the same amount of yeast that the recipe calls for. Um, I usually increase it slightly. I think I'd increase it by 20% or so if you're going to let it stay in the freezer more than a couple of days. Okay. I think there's one other thing and make sure your freezer is at zero. You know, I had a freezer once that was around 10 degrees because I had so much stuff in it. You want this thing to freeze fast. If it freezes too slowly, you get big ice crystals, which creates all sorts of problems. Right. All right. I'm going to try it out. Okay. Yeah, let us know what happens. Yeah, I'll let you know how it goes. Okay. Thanks, Ashley. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Alice Wooten of uh, Paoli, Indiana. How are you? I'm great. I'm very happy to get some help from you guys. Well, we'll try anyway. So what's your question? (laughs) Well, like you, I don't like cooking with cake mixes. I have a couple of recipes that call for cake mixes with pudding in the mix, and I'd like to be able to make those from scratch. How do you do that? Wow, that is such a large question. Give me an example of the recipe you're talking about. Let's start. Okay, the one I really want is called delicate pear cake Mm -hmm. with caramel sauce, and it requires a white cake mix with pudding in the mix. You mix it with a can of pears and light syrup. You have to puree the pears, and then you add oil and egg whites and some of the pear liquid from the can. And then you bake it in a tube pan, and then, of course, it's iced with uh, sweetened whipped cream. And then there's a caramel sauce. It's just really delicious. And I don't want to use a mix that has all these chemicals in it. One thing I do know about cake mixes, they do an excellent job of texture. And my guess is, in this case, it's very helpful because you're dealing with something that's fairly heavy, the pears and the liquid. So if you're not going to use a cake mix, you're going to have to come up with a homemade cake mix that's going to be equally good at that. Let's go to the pears again. It's just a a 15-ounce can of pear halves in light syrup. Drain the pears first, and you reserve a third a cup of the liquid, and then you puree the pears, and then you add that puree along with that reserved light syrup to the cake mix, and then you add oil and egg white. You could poach your own pears, so you could do that part of it homemade. And then you've got at least that part, you've controlled the ingredients. Uh, I I have a question, though. When you say there's a pudding added, what do you mean exactly? Well, most of it's just chemicals. I mean, words I can't even pronounce. Well, what it is is a riff on a pudding cake. It's just marketing. I would go to Rose Berenbaum's Cake Bible. I agree. And she has a recipe which she does reverse creaming. That is, she 
beats the softened butter in with the flour is the first step, which gives mm-hmm. you really great texture. And I would use her recipe as the base. That's what I would do. I think okay. that's an excellent idea. Yeah. Use her recipe. The pureed pears will make it wonderfully moist also. I think the pear liquid's a little dicey. That's the one part I would worry about. I would just add the pears. Leave it at that. What's the book? The Cake Bible. Look in her book and see if she has a recipe for something like this already. Yeah. That's the other thing I would do. Yeah, she might. She might have something similar, and then you could just use her recipe, which is probably a better idea. Yeah. Give that a shot. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Alice. This is Mill Street Radio. It's time for this week's cooking tip. If you're like my wife and I, you buy a lot of Greek yogurt, but you don't always know what to do with it. So here are some tips from Milk Street. First of all, you can blend it with a little honey and vanilla extract, and it makes a great whipped cream. You can simply combine it with harissa paste, that's a hot chili paste from North Africa, and also herbs to make a spread for sandwiches. It's really good. Mix it with tahini for a quick pasta sauce, or simply top it off with apricot jam and crushed almonds for a last-minute dessert. For more culinary inspiration, visit 177milkstreet.com. Next up, it's Dr. Aaron Carroll, who tells the truth about diet and health. Dr. Carroll, how are you? I'm good. How are you? So uh, another case of bad things really being good for us. Is that what we're doing today? Oh, might it be more of a talk about how good things really just might not be that good for us. Really? Uh, I thought we could talk about milk. All right. So, you know, milk is one of those things that, you know, if you if you believe the advertisements that it's good for your bones, it's got calcium and vitamin D, and that it even, you know, to quote the ads, does a body good. But milk is one of those things where the advertisements and the, the promotion sometimes outweighs the actual evidence of how much good it's doing for us. And so let me say right off the bat, no one is disputing that for babies, you know, breast milk is phenomenal. That's exactly what they're supposed to be drinking. And, you know, even past that, that you need all the fat that that you're going to get in whole milk, especially for uh, brain development and for actual growth. But once you get to be about that point, milk becomes an optional beverage. There's no other mammals on the planet that drink milk outside of the neonatal period. It's, It's only human beings where we keep pushing it. And a lot of it is because we have been told over and over again that we need the calcium, we, we, need, we need everything that's in milk, and that without it, we, we won't be healthy. That it is somehow, of all the calorie-containing beverages, the one that sort of gets a pass that we have been told is full of everything that we need and is super healthy for us, and that without it, we might even be suffering. There's just no good evidence for that. There has been study after study after study. In 2011, uh, the Journal of Bone and Mineral Research published a meta-analysis that looked at six studies containing almost 200,000 women, and it could find no relationship between how much milk you consumed and whether or not you got a fracture, which is, of course, what the major marker for bone health would be. There was a study looking at kids uh, published in JAMA Pediatrics just a couple years ago that followed almost 100,000 men and women for two decades. And they were basically looking back to see, did you drink milk as a teenager and see if it actually had any relationship with hip fractures later in life? And it absolutely did not. There have been huge studies of men and women, both prospective and retrospective, that follow all of uh, the kinds of things you'd be concerned about. Bone strength, bone health, fractures, falls. And, and it turns out that milk doesn't really make that much of a difference at all. And and we can talk about why does this matter? Like, why should we care? But milk has calories. You know, drinking three glasses of milk a day, which is often what people push, 
adds about 250 calories to your diet. And especially this is always fascinates me with kids. You know, I'm a pediatrician. Um, how schools and cafeterias will absolutely positively say, we're not going to have soda. But again, milk gets a pass. We, we, we sort of ignore the calories. We assume it's, a, it's an absolute positive. But there's, there, there's no proven benefit uh, for the vast, vast, vast majority of people who are drinking it. Well, I assume uh, it goes back to the history of milk where in the industrial age, right, late 19th century, it was an industry looking for a customer, right? <laughs> so, yep. so it's not a surprise that the industry tried to sell it. And when I was young, it was nature's nearly perfect food. Wasn't that the, uh, yep. the tagline? You remember that? It's obvious why this was marketed. The question is, how do we get the notion that scientifically speaking, it was good for us? Well, part of the, I think it's what you're talking about, and it got it got worse. I mean, you can go back to the 1983 Dairy Production and Stabilization Act, which basically made it the government's business to carry out a, a program to promote and strengthen the dairy industry's position in the marketplace and to expand markets for dairy products. The 1994 ad, which was the whole campaign of Got Milk, was actually from Dairy Management Incorporated, which is a nonprofit created by the government in 1994 expressly for this purpose. So it's not just industry, it's the government that has gotten behind it and sort of pushed it. Now it's become, of course, an enormous money-making venture. But again, a lot of calories, no real benefit, and we have become convinced that this is something that we as human beings are sort of the only mammals that need to do that. Now, having said that, I'm not trying to argue that we should not consume milk just because mammals don't. There's lots of stuff that we do that other animals don't. And I'm totally fine with people that are drinking milk because they want to. I mean, you know, what else are you going to do with an Oreo or, you know, a good a hot piece of apple pie? But you, milk should be like everything else. You consume it because you want it, not because you need it. So I have a question. So if you consume almond milk, for example, I, I have almond mm-hmm. milk at home. It, it, it's no better or worse than, than milk milk? Probably not, although it's fascinating to me, and this we could do a whole other episode on this, how you know there's been a whole argument recently about what actually can be called milk. Uh, right. Because, of course, traditionally that meant that the, you know, the liquid that, was, that mammals produce in order to support their young, uh, when we pull it out of nuts and we pull it out of vegetables, it may be white if they've changed it to that. It may taste a bit like milk, but it's not technically milk. But there's nothing probably better or worse about many of these other drinks. They have no special place uh, into the terms of, of the, sort of the health market. And there's just really not that much of an evidence base to prove that these are foods or beverages that are that healthy for us. Uh, certainly no science to show that by consuming them, we're going to live longer or be healthier. Is there some way where there's a dispassionate scientific overview so when an industry makes claims about their product, this can be put to rest and so people have something to rely on? Well, sure. My flip answer would be they should tune into our segments on your radio program to to, to get the full answer. Um, But I wish that there was sort of one party that would would dispassionately rule about this stuff. But again, I I do think it comes back to sort of common sense. Um, You know, things that often are touted as incredibly bad for us often wind up being not as bad as people said or how much you've been told to fear. I'd argue that many of the things we're told are are great for us and act like medicine often have, unfortunately, the same kind of hype, that food is food and that a well-balanced diet is probably the best we can do and that we shouldn't be over-promoting or over-demonizing any specific food, and milk would fall into that as well. So the short answer is 
Don't drink milk for your bones. Drink milk because you like it. Exactly. (laughs) Because you want it, not because you need it. Dr. Aaron Carroll, thank you. Uh, The truth about milk. Thank you. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll. He's the professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. Dr. Aaron Carroll notes that cow's milk is not the superfood we think it is. And that makes me wonder if superfoods really exist. So let me say goodbye to the superfoods of my past, including yogurt. It's not going to make me live longer. Green tea. Well, it just tastes funny. Kombucha, a fizzy vinegar that costs as much as a good bottle of bourbon. Almond milk. It sometimes contains sugar and not much protein. And chia seeds, which simply get stuck in my teeth. I'm going back to chocolate and red wine. They may not be superfoods, but they taste a whole lot better going down. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen to every episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. You can find each week's recipe, check out bonus blog posts from the show, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. We'll be back next week with more food stories. And thanks, of course, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugertz. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. The music by Tubelp Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.